Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The NFL football season doesn't start for another few weeks. Nope, not until training camps open in July. However, the CFL, the Canadian Football League, that season is underway as training camps have opened. And while here in the U.S., I concentrate more on the stories of the forgotten heroes, teams, and events more relatable to us, there are still great stories elsewhere. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I'm going to discuss one of the great forgotten stories of the CFL. The first Western City team to win the Grey Cup, a team simply known as the Winnipeg. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 120, The Winnipegs. In today's version of the Canadian Football League, the Winnipegs are better known as the Blue Bombers. At first, however, they didn't have a nickname and were just known as the Winnipegs. And in 1935, they did something that no other team based in Western Canada had ever done. Win the Grey Cup. And not only did they win the Grey Cup, they also became the first Western City team to beat an Eastern City team ever in the history of the CFL. And it wasn't easy. You see, the Winnipeg struggled. They had a roster of good football players, but not as strong as their Eastern counterparts. So, what did they do to overcome their lack of talent? Today, I think their course of action might be frowned upon, but back in the 1930s, it wasn't. They went out and signed American-bred football players, several of them. Guys like Joe Perpich, Bert Ogier, Herb Peschel, Bud Marquardt, and Bob Fritz, to name a few. The American influence was welcomed by many. And it turned the fortunes of the team around. In fact, in 1935, the Winnipegs went 11-0 and beat Hamilton in the Grey Cup 18-12. It was an important moment in CFL history to finally have a Western City team win the championship. Overall, Winnipeg has won the Grey Cup nine times, and Edmonton, Another Western City team has won it more than any other with 11 championships. Of course, the CFL was set up very differently than it is today. 
And we're going to discuss that with R.C., Ryan Christensen, who recently released a very detailed book about the origins of the Winnipegs and the journey they took to that first championship in a book called Border Boys. Before we do, however, a few notes for you. Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member of the Sports History Network. This is a conglomerate of many sports history podcasts running the gamut from Sports Forgotten Heroes to football-specific podcasts, basketball-specific podcasts, other sports history podcasts. Heck, there's even a race car-specific podcast and a lot more. Check it out at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Of course, don't forget to check out my website, SportsFH.com. Here's where I have more information about the topics I discuss. Also, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to drop me a note, please do so at sportsfh.info at gmail.com. That's sportsfh.info at gmail.com. In fact, this is how Ryan Christensen, today's guest, got a hold of me and, after a little bit of uh, research, decided to do this podcast. Please follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook and please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. As always, thank you for your support. Okay, let's get into today's show about the Winnipegs with my guest, R.C. or Ryan Christensen. Ryan, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us. Oh, and I'm glad to be here. You have a great podcast, and uh, now I'm going to hear myself on the podcast, which is always kind of an eerie experience, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to ask you, um, your book, Border Boys, How Americans from Border Colleges Helped Western Canada to Win a Football Championship, where did the idea to write such a book come from? Well, um of course, people who are interested in uh, Canadian football, uh, we always see that there's a lot of American players on those teams. And um, I was up in Canada in 2018. I was at a Winnipeg Blue Bombers game. I'm from Fargo, North Dakota. So, <laughs> uh, well, I we live approximately the same distance from Winnipeg as we do from Minneapolis. And ah, okay. Yeah, so I had decided that, you know, I could be a uh, Winnipeg Blue Bombers fan too because I wanted to, you know, increase my interest in the Canadian game. And I thought there wasn't a better way to do it than to actually go up there instead of just watching all the streaming availability. Mm -hmm. So I uh, went up to a game, took my family up there, and actually went to a few games that year. But... We were at, at this particular game, they were playing uh, Montreal Alouettes, and uh, at halftime, they inducted someone new into their ring of honor. And I, at the time, I happened to be wandering around the concourse looking for uh, a beer or beers for me and my wife. <laughs> and, and I was actually disappointed because I was looking for Canadian beer and all they had was Budweiser. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, uh, I get back to my seat and I missed the whole halftime thing. But my wife said, 
Did you know they just inducted someone into the Ring of Honor who had played at North Dakota State University? And of course, you know, that's the big uh, Division One multi-year champion here in -hmm. in Fargo, North Dakota. And so I said, well, who was it? And she said, well, some guy named Fritz Hansen. And I'm like, never heard of him. And so I, when we returned home, I had already joined the Professional Football Researchers Association, mm-hmm. I, think, I think maybe a year before. And um, so I thought, well, maybe I could get an article out of this. And so uh, I looked into it. And as soon as I started looking into it, I'm like, how do I not know about Chris Hansen? Because he's in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. He's in the inaugural class of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. So, in other words, at that point, they said, well, geez, if we have anyone in the Hall of Fame, Fritz Hansen has to be there. So <laughs> so I was just intrigued and, and just stupefied. Why don't I know about this guy? And then while uh, looking into Fritz Hansen using the wonderful tools that we have nowadays, I'm searching newspapers and things, I'm running across this other Fritz name. And... And it, yeah, Bob Fritz. Yeah, another guy, and he's named Bob Fritz. So we got Fritz Hansen, and then there's Bob Fritz. And the thing about Bob Fritz is I knew the name Bob Fritz because I grew up in uh, Moorhead, Minnesota, across the river here from Fargo, and there was a Bob Fritz Sporting Goods and while I was growing up. And so I thought, wow. So Bob Fritz was part of this too. And then I, then what I figured out in short order is that there were three players from North Dakota State University and one from Concordia College in Moorhead that all went up there together uh, to play for the Winnipeg team in 1935. And they ended up winning the Grey Cup. And so from there, I just, I couldn't stop. I just kept doing my research and the result is um, quite a thick tome of of facts. Hey all, sorry to interrupt the show like this, but I wanted to ask you for a little help. I'm guessing that several of you are like me and everyone place a little bet on your favorite team. Well, I'm asking for a favor. I recently found a great online site for placing bets. It's called BetUS.com. They have tons of bonuses for you if you sign up beginning with a 125% sign-up bonus if you use the code SPORTSFH10. That's SPORTSFH10. Just go to BetUS.com or call 800-MYBETUS. That's 800-MYBETUS. Or again, go to BetUS.com. NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, player props, UFC matches, horse racing, golf, you name it. It's all there on BetUS.com. Use the promo code SPORTSFH10 and you'll get a 125% sign-up bonus. So, if you like to place a wager here and there, follow my lead and get your phone or go online like I did to BetUS.com. You bet, you win, you get paid. BetUS.com. And remember, use the promo code SPORTSFH10 for a 125% sign-up bonus. And yeah, this podcast 
gets a little, and thanks for your support. Yeah, your book really does dive in deep, and we're going to explore some of that. Uh, And, you know, some of the origins, I think, of the Blue Bomb, of the CFL itself. And one thing we need to do right off the bat, and maybe I just misunderstood how the CFL was originally uh, uh, formatted, we'll say, how it was set up. So back in the early 1930s, during the period you wrote about, I'm really confused on this point. Was it a football league or was it a rugby league? I'm not sure I understand that. At, at, at what point, why was it called rugby? I'm, uh, can you clear that up for me? Sure. Well, um, as most people who follow uh, football history know, both American and Canadian football originated with rugby. And it was actually, it went through Canada to America, right? So uh, the origin is actually from Canada to the United States. And then these two systems sort of diverge. <clears throat> and, but they not just diverged, but they crossed over and, and influenced one another over time. Well, in Canada, it took them until 1929 to even try using the forward pass. Okay. And, and they also, uh, even through uh, the course of this book, through 1935, um, they pretty much didn't allow much blocking at all. Uh, Early on, there was no blocking, uh, like in rugby, Uh, but uh, there was very limited blocking at the time with that I'm writing this book. So so in Canada, it was much more rugby-like until 1929, but especially in 1931, when they finally uh, worked out all the kinks and got a forward pass in place that was pretty much like the American forward pass. Mm-hmm. Okay. But they still uh, called it rugby for the most yeah, part. Yeah, yeah. That I guess that's where my confusion came from because you reference rugby quite often and I'm and and it I was like, all right, so I'm not understanding this. So but now I do. Thank you. Thank you for clearing that up. Well, and I'm going to be probably saying rugby still when we talk, because uh, even though they had adopted largely uh, calling the game football by this time, uh, the organizations within Canada that oversaw the different games. They still were rugby had, clubs. Yeah, they were still rugby in the name. So Understood. So, Ryan, your book certainly goes way back. I mean back to really the origins of the Canadian Football League. But we're going to concentrate mostly on 1935. You know, it was really a special year because for the first time, a team from Western Canada won the Grey Cup, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Now, of course, I'm calling them the Blue Bombers because that's who they are today, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. But mm-hmm. that's not what they were known as back then. So No, they didn't what, get the yeah. 
Yeah, yeah what they didn't were they the, known when, as? And, and and what were they known as? And when did they become the Blue Bombers? Yeah, so they actually became the Blue Bombers the next year after they won the Great Cup in 1935. So, um, and they didn't, I don't know when they officially became the Blue Bombers, but one of the sports writers in a Winnipeg newspaper began calling them the Blue Bombers, uh, sort of in reference to, uh, in allusion to the Brown Bomber uh, boxer. I believe his name was Joe Lewis. But Joe I, I, Lewis, sure. Um, but they were just called the Winnipegs. <laughs> right, right. But Winnipeg, so they were the Winnipegs, but there were other teams in the area. And one of them was, I'm going to try to say this correctly, the Winnipeg Tammany Tigers. Did I say that right, Tammany? Um, yeah, the, the Winnipeg Tammany Tigers were the precursor to uh, the Winnipegs. And so the Winnipeg Tammany Tigers, I don't know how far back they go exactly, but they actually did compete in the Grey Cup in 1925 against the Ottawa Senators. Right. And they... So so, so before we jump there, before we jump there, um, for the Winnipeg community itself, and we're going to get to 1925 in a second, it was a long journey for them to get their hands on that gray cup. Um, but for the Winnipegs themselves, now the, for the community, like I said, it was a long journey. But for the Winnipegs or the Blue Bombers, it really wasn't. The team itself was founded in 1930. And then just five years later, they win the gray cup. But again, it was a long journey for the community of Winnipeg. So let's start with, I'm going to call them the Tigers because Tammany's going to mess me up here. Who were they and what happened to that team? To the Tammany Tigers? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, they, um, they <clears throat> actually, they, they pretty much changed their name uh, to the, officially to the Winnipeg Rugby Club and then just called themselves the Winnipegs and then adopted at that time, the colors green and white. And uh, as far as I can tell, there is a direct line from the Tammany Tigers to the Winnipeg Rugby Club, but <clears throat> the Winnipeg Blue Bombers don't recognize the Tammany Tigers um, because they are outside of being part of their organization in the official uh, CFL lineage or something like that. <clears throat> so, but the, Ta the Tammany Tigers um, were the direct um, ancestor of the Winnipeg Rugby Club. Hmm. So it's not as if the Tigers had disbanded or folded. They somehow became a part of the rugby club and the rugby club ultimately uh became the Winnipegs and then the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Is that how that worked? Right. And one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the through lines through all of this is a gentleman named uh, Lou Edelman. His uh, first, his nickname was Rosie, Rosie Edelman. Uh, <laughs> he, he actually played for the Winnipeg Tammany Tigers. And 
on that 1925 Grey Cup team that lost to the Ottawa Senators, and he was on the Winnipeg team when they won the 1935 Grey Cup, and I think he was there for a couple of years after that as well. So he was he was playing on that Winnipeg uh, team with that that kind of through line there uh, for 17 years. Mm. Okay, interesting. Okay, so. There is a connection with at least, well, well, probably a couple other players, too. Let me ask you this. Why was it so difficult for the Tigers and other clubs from Western Canada to win the Grey Cup? What was, why was the, why were the Western teams, I hate to use the word inferior, but when it came to the Grey Cup, Western Canada was inferior to Eastern Canada. Why? Well, it mostly has to do with, uh, just like in the United States, uh, we had westward expansion. And, of course, that was the same thing in Canada. And so early on in uh, Canadian football, you had uh, an organization of football teams uh, in Quebec, and you also had an organization in Ontario. And that's about as far west as things went. But then over the years, uh, Manitoba started their own uh, organization. These are all called unions. Uh, they, so they formed the Manitoba Rugby Football Union. And then it just headed west. It was Saskatchewan and then Alberta and then Brit, uh, British Columbia. They all formed their own uh, rugby football unions, they called them. And uh, so because of that, the population centers, of course, were in the east. Uh, so were um, most the the major universities, and uh, so uh, you know people would go to college in the east, and they might play rugby football at one of the colleges there, and then they would stay, right? They would live and stay in the area, and then they would end up playing for one of the club teams uh, afterward. And so the talent was really concentrated in the east, and it just uh, it, you know, it just made for better teams in the East. Hmm. Okay. Well, a few teams did break through and make it to the championship game. And just a short time ago, you did refer to the Tigers who uh, made it to the championship game in 1925, but they got thumped by Ottawa, the Ottawa Senators, 24 to 1. Obviously disappointing, a disappointing outcome. Do you know what happened in that game? Were they just that overmatched? Was there any sense of accomplishment? They were overmatched. Um, <clears throat> I never did look into the details of that game, but I know in the aftermath uh, that Rosie Adelman, one of the things that he recalled was how the newspapers afterward called uh, the Tammany Tigers a bunch of intermediates. And so what that means is in the uh, system of, of rugby football at the time, you had junior level um, and then you had intermediate level and you had uh, the, the, the senior level teams. And the senior level teams are all the ones that competed for uh, the Great Cup. And senior level teams, by the way, included universities. Right, and we'll, and we'll touch upon that too. Um, how sometimes you played university teams. Um, but let's right now, let's fast forward 
1935. So we sort of talked about that there was a team, the Tammany Tigers. There was, you know, uh, uh, the rugby club. The Tigers were no more. Out of that came the Winnipegs. The Winnipegs really came about in 1930. And by 35, they became a pretty good team. And what I'd like to do is play a little name association with you. I want, I'm going to mention a player's name, and you're going to tell us a little bit about that player, um, where they played their college ball, why they decided to play in the CFL instead of the NFL, how they ended up with Winnipeg. Um, you know, uh, those are some of the things that if you want to recall and tell us about, that, that would be great. And um, let's start with a guy who you already talked about. Where did he come from? Tell us a little bit about him. Rosie Adelman. Rosie, Rosie Adelman. He's a Winnipeg native. And um, <laughs> I, I, I apologize, though, but I don't know a whole lot more about Rosie Adelman, except that he had played on the Winnipeg Tammany Tigers team as well. Uh, one of one of the things uh, when it comes to the Canadian players, I wasn't able to find out quite as much information about them as I wanted to. Uh, on the American side, though, I was able to find quite a bit more. Well, let's talk about Bob Fritz. Tell us a little bit more about Bob Fritz. Okay. So uh, Bob Fritz, he's from International Falls, Minnesota, and he actually grew up playing on the same basketball team in high school as Bronco Nagurski. And of course, Bronco Nagurski went off to uh, <laughs> uh, fame, right? So you did uh, at the it's university. It's a name of that's still spoken about today. <laughs> right. Well, anyways, he played basketball with, with him there. And um, I think he was uh, one year behind Bronco, but then he went to Concordia College, and he played on the freshman team at Concordia College in 1929. And then, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I think it was finances, because it seems to be a theme with Bob Fritz that he had some financial uh, trouble paying for college. And of course, remember, this was the, uh, uh, the Great Depression, <laughs> so uh, it wouldn't be a surprise if anyone had trouble paying for something. So. Um, but he returned then home to International Falls. His dad was a superintendent uh, at a uh, sawmill. And so, and he's listed, Bob Fritz is, in the census as having worked at a sawmill. So I assume he was a hired hand there. But then he came back in uh, 1931 uh, to Concordia College and he played varsity. And so here he is, um, uh, 22 years old already and he's starting his first varsity year at Concordia College. Now he played at Concordia College for, uh, he actually played five years at Concordia College and it's because of how the, the conference, the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference was struggling to figure out what they needed to do to determine who's eligible or not. And he just sort of, you know, found his way through the loopholes and, and played five years. And uh, part of it is because of the first three years he played at Concordia, he played only 
excuse me, he only attended college in the fall when he was also playing football. So um, he played at Concordia College and he helped Concordia College to uh, two conference championships. And he was also every single year uh, as varsity player, uh, 31, two, three, and four, he was, you know, all conference and all that. And so one of the interesting things about Bob Fritz is that he was ambidextrous and he could throw or kick um, from either side of his body. And it actually helped him because in one of those seasons, he broke his hand. Uh, so he just kept playing and he just threw with the other hand. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So Bob Fritz, he, you know, he goes through all that time at Concordia and Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, which is across the river from Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, every year they would open their season and they would play against uh, North Dakota State University. And so uh, Bob Fritz became really familiar with those guys at North Dakota State University while he was playing. And so, but part of this story though, is that Bob Fritz at Concordia for two years, the Concordia team while Bob Fritz was there would go up to Winnipeg and they would play against the Winnipeg Rugby Club, the precursor to, to be calling the, the Blue Bombers, right? And so in those years, 1933 and 1934, the crowd in Winnipeg saw Bob Fritz and he was really appealing to them because he was really commanding on the field and he barked out his signals. And of course he's ambidextrous and he's a, he's a big fullback. And of course at that time, the fullback would play more like a quarterback, uh, but also run the ball. So he was a big uh, line plunger uh, but he was also fast and he played great defense and he caught the eye of the Winnipeg organization. And so by 19, before the 1935 season, the Winnipeg organization had decided, you know, we need to go full bore on getting Americans uh, on our team if we want to win a great cup. And so Bob Fritz was the first guy they approached because they mm -hmm. were familiar with him. And then, of course, Bob Fritz knew the guys at NDSU. Um, uh, and, and then the Winnipeg team had played a bunch of other guys, uh, organizations as well. And so there's different stories for different guys. But, yeah, so Bob Fritz hung his way up there because he had actually played up there with Concordia College against Winnipeg. Okay. Understood. And, again, we're talking about the Border Boys, uh, uh, guys from the U.S., who ended up in Canada and helped the Winnipeg Blue Bombers or the Winnipegs win the Grey Cup in 1935, the first ever Western Canadian team to win the Grey Cup. How about Bud Marquardt? Okay, Bud Marquardt is from Moorhead, Minnesota. So when he attended NDSU in Fargo, he didn't have to go very far. And he played on uh, championship basketball teams at Moorhead High School. He was a really good basketball player at center. And then he played end at North Dakota State University. And, and that's kind of, you know, we see that nowadays, right? We see tight ends who are former basketball players, right? 
And so while he was at North Dakota State University, he uh, he was well known um, for his ability to run down uh, punts uh, before the the returner could could make could get very far. So he was a you know a gunner on those situations. But he was also really good at at receiving as well and defending, right? Because you you played both ways back then. So he would uh, play good pass defense, and uh, so he. He played with North Dakota State University. They had a championship uh, in that one season. It was the 1932 season that North Dakota State had a championship while he was there. And um, he was part of that group that Bob Fritz sought out when it came time to find more players to uh, fill the Winnipeg roster. Okay. You already touched upon this guy, but there's – you know, maybe you could even tell us a little bit about the recruitment of Fritz Hansen, the guy who ultimately led you to writing this book. He was just hanging out in a bar in, I think you said, Dilworth, Minnesota. Uh, Winnipeg's manager, a guy by the name of Joe Ryan, got Hansen to sign with the team. Um, tell us a little bit about Fritz Hansen and the recruitment of Fritz Hansen. Sure. Well, Fritz Hansen, his real first name is Melvin, uh, but his nickname was Fritz, uh, which wasn't confusing to me at all when I'm trying to write this book, of course. But um, he did go by Fritz, and that's how he is in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. And so Fritz Hansen he is. Uh, but he uh, grew up in Purim, Minnesota, which is about an hour east of Moorhead, Minnesota. And when he played their high school ball, there was one game where he had scored 11 touchdowns. And I wasn't able to get uh, more than secondhand um, information that that was an 11 touchdown game, but it's very plausible that he did because he was That's just a lot of touchdowns. It is. But he was just a little guy and he was really fast. And you know, little running backs are hard to tackle. And so he um and that that team that year when they said he scored eleven touchdowns, his team outscored or excuse me, they he, they scored two hundred and seventy seven points in eight games. And so, you know, there was quite a few points wow. for the team. Yeah. Well, anyways, he came to North Dakota State University by way of his track accomplishments because uh, he was at the Minnesota State High School track meet where he won the 100-yard dash in 10.1 seconds, which at that time was only a tenth of a second short of a state record. So he was really fast, and but he had also participated in track meets uh, in Fargo, as did Bud Marquardt. So I failed to mention that earlier, but Fritz Hansen competed in track meets where he was probably seen by the coach there at North Dakota State University. In fact, I believe he met with uh, Coach Casey Finnegan after the track meet there at NDSU, and then he was recruited to North Dakota State University. While he was at North Dakota State, he was used... Uh, quite intelligently, I think, by Coach Finnegan because he was a fast little guy, and but Coach Finnegan would not start him 
because he wanted the other team to wear out first. And so, you know, they'd faced another team uh, that maybe was heavier overall than his team. And so he would keep Fritz out of uh, Fritz Hansen out of the game until the other tight side got a little tired. And then he'd put this speedster in there and they just didn't know what to do with them. Um, yeah. And so then, so, you know, he had great success at North Dakota State University with some really long runs. Uh, he was also a passing halfback and uh, he, he became quite famous within uh, a short period of time at North Dakota State University for North Dakota State University fans. And so again, Bob Fritz had played against Fritz Hansen. And so, like you said, um, he, he told him, yeah, you know, this is where Fritz Hansen hangs out. I'm assuming that's what he said, because Joe Ryan shows up at the bar where Fritz Hansen is. And Fritz Hansen is sitting there uh, with a drink, sitting on the piano and asks him, hey, do you want to come to Canada? Now, with yeah, now, didn't his mother also play a role in this, Fritz Hansen's mother? Yes. So what happened was Fritz Hansen was actually also recruited by, and it's not clear, but at least one NFL team. And uh, it, it sounds like it could have been up to three different NFL teams uh, going after him. But he had received a contract from one of them, and he looked it over, and his mother looked it over, and his mother said, I don't know, Melvin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> These guys in the contract say they can just cut you at any time. And yeah, it's good money, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe you should listen to this Joe Ryan guy from Winnipeg because it turns out in Winnipeg, they offered him basically the same amount of money, but they said that, you know, there would be no cuts. But the weird thing to me, Warren, is that there was no contract with with Winnipeg. It was a handshake deal. And Fritz Hansen went with Winnipeg and not with the NFL. Wow. On a handshake. Wow. All right. I got I got one more for you to talk about. Um, you know, there were a few. There were a few guys, obviously, on the team. There was Joe Perpich, who went to St. Cloud State. Talk about, I know I'm not going to get this name right, Bert Oja or Bert Oha, who went to Minnesota. Herb Peschel, North Dakota State. But I would like for you to talk about Greg Cabot. Okay. Greg could be Cabot, could be Cabot. I honestly don't know how to say his last name. <laughs> I was going to uh. call him Cabot. <laughs> But I'm going with Cabot for right Okay. Um, so I'll say Cabot then as well. So Cabot is from the University of Wisconsin. And so he had played at Wisconsin alongside um, another player named Russ Rebholz. And Russ Rebholz was, I think, a year or two ahead of him. I can't remember how, how, what the distance was. But Russ Rebholz had actually been brought up to uh, Winnipeg ahead of Greg Cabot. And so uh, Russ Rebels was the first uh, American uh, player coach for the 
St. John's Rugby Football Club, which was one of the other Winnipeg teams uh, early on. And Russ Rebels made his way to the Winnipeg club when St. John's folded. And then Re Rebels helped Winnipeg seek out uh, uh, Cabot and brought him up there. And, you know, honestly, I don't know a whole lot about Greg Cabot before that time, but I'll tell you the real interesting thing about him. He was a lineman, but sometimes he would carry the ball out of a position. Uh, and of course, it's a 12-man team in Canadian football. Right, you called uh, it the flying wing. The flying wing. Sometimes he would carry the ball on the flying wing, which was essentially the fifth backfielder, right? And um, But mostly he played on the line, but he was also the place kicker. But he was also extremely nearsighted. And uh, <laughs> when they, whenever he would kick a place kick, they would, they would actually lay a, a, a tape. They called it a tape. I don't know what they actually laid on the field, but they laid like basically a directional marker on the field for him. So he knew what direction to kick the ball. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. And, and he also threw passes. <laughs> so wow. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. They had a lot of trust in him. <laughs> hey, Ryan. Um, all right. Well, first of all, those are the main, those are the Americans. Those are the border boys that really went up to Winnipeg and made a difference. Now, we're also talking about a time when, you know, the NFL was really still, I don't want to say in its infancy, but it was still at a time that it was establishing itself. CFL was around at that time, obviously, as well. I don't know if you can answer this, though. What was the competition like for players between the NFL and the CFL? Was the NFL the dominant league at this point, or were the two leagues on somewhat of equal footing? Well, there actually was no CFL at that time. Uh, at the time, it was still a system where every province had its own uh, union, their own rugby football union. And all of them rolled up into what was called the Canadian Rugby Union. And what the way they played it was uh, a competition between, ultimately for the Great Cup, between East and West. And with the West starting in Manitoba, going west and then everything else obviously to the east part of the east the um the each, each union it's interesting though because when we talk about leagues you know we're talking about assembling certain teams uh belonging to an organization and they all play one another well that wasn't actually the case when you talked about these uh, rugby football unions because the rugby football unions in in different communities and in different um you know, depending on what the setup is, they oversaw rugby football at all levels in uh, their communities or provinces. And so one of that leads though to one of the interesting things I've mentioned before, we have junior level, intermediate level and senior level. Uh, that led to this interesting situation where the colleges actually played the club teams at the senior level. And so early on, there were times when a university team would play a club team for the Grey Cup, but um, right. but that that fell off uh, around this time because 
the university teams, although they might have been up to some of their own shenanigans trying to get players on their teams, they weren't outright paying players uh, like the club teams were, you know, to bring up these Americans and all that. And so they just couldn't compete anymore with the club teams. Yeah. And then sometimes teams would play, you would play, like if they played an American team, uh, an NFL team, you would play NFL rules one half, Canadian rules the second half. I mean, sometimes, um, and the field, the fields weren't even all the same size. No, uh, the the Canadian rules, uh, they still use the 110-yard field. But of course, now when we talk about rule systems, they played, if they played an American team, it was usually an American college team. And they played by American intercollegiate rules. And so, which was the same as NFL rules until 1933. Then in 1933, the NFL departed uh, from the intercollegiate rules. Yeah. But they, um, so they would, there was, especially in Winnipeg, because what happened was by 1933, Winnipeg had no more local opponents because they, uh, so excuse me, they still had a team called Garrison, which was the, you know, the Garrison. It was the soldiers uh, 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 from the uh, uh, the Royal uh, Armed Forces uh, there. But the other teams that had formed the nucleus of what they called the Winnipeg Senior League, which included the Winnipeg Rugby Club, St. John's Rugby Football Club, the uh, Manor. Um, University of Manitoba, uh, the University of Manitoba had stopped playing rugby football. Uh, St. John's Rugby Football Club, which had been the dominant team uh, up until they they folded, um, they had quit seized operations as well. And so in order to have any competition, Winnipeg, the Winnipeg Club had to play teams from the United States. They had to seek out contests against college teams down in North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, to just fill out a schedule. Right. Well, that sort of goes into where I'm headed next, 1935. How important was the 1935 season for Winnipeg? I mean, you're talking a team that's got to go and search for opponents on occasion, as you just said, um, it just didn't seem like the team was drawing very huge crowds. In fact, the big crowd was maybe 2,000 people. What kinds of crowds were Eastern teams drawing, and was there ever a threat of Winnipeg folding up? Absolutely. So uh, the numbers in the East, you know, were a good five times as many as would, would show up on a good day in Winnipeg. But uh, in Winnipeg, they had a they had a lot of trouble attracting a crowd, and part of that is because the team in the West that had been so dominant for so long was actually the Regina Roughriders, which is the precursor to today's Saskatchewan Roughriders. And 
uh, Regina was basically seen as the team in the West. Fans mm. gravitated towards those games. When Regina came to Winnipeg, they filled the stands, right? Because that was, you know, they were the big guns. So they wanted to see that team. But Winnipeg had a hard time attracting interest in their teams locally. Uh, the way it, it got turned around, though, was in 1931 when they hired a guy named Joe Ryan. And so Joe Ryan, he was uh, he went to the University of Manitoba Law School and dropped out. And then he ended up living in the United States for a while. He was uh, a bookkeeper for his mother's cousin in a logging camp in northern Wisconsin. And so while he was there, his um, uh, the person he was working for said, hey, would you like to go see a, a Notre Dame football game? And they're like, well, yeah, sure. So he got tickets and took a train down to see uh, Notre Dame play. And after that, he asked, that was in 1924. And after that, he fell in love with Notre Dame football and, of course, American <laughs> intercollegiate football in general. Well, he took this passion uh, with him back to Winnipeg. And when they, when Winnipeg needed a new manager in 1931, he volunteered. And he started making changes. And the first thing he did was help to establish um, the, the Winnipeg Senior League with all these other teams. Uh, but he was also the driving force behind bringing the Americans up into Winnipeg. And also, he was a big voice. He kept pushing for, if not all of Canada, at least Western Canada, which the Western provinces rolled up into what was called the Western Canadian Rugby Football Union. So that was the West side of everything, pushing them to just go American inter intercollegiate rules. Um, he, he was very frustrated with trying to make changes to the Canadian game and getting nowhere. Um, and he just wanted them to just go all out on the American intercollegiate rules. But anyways, he helped over time make improvements to the local stadiums. Um, and he was also, and I don't have direct evidence of this, but I, I can't imagine he didn't, he wouldn't have a part of, in this. Uh, in that 1933, uh, 34, I can't remember which season it was, but the, uh, it, was, it was 1934 season because the chapter is named Brown and Gold. And, and because that was the University of Manitoba's interesting season. And in that season, they hired a University of Minnesota Gophers coach named Wally Haas to come up and coach their team. And they scheduled a full-on American intercollegiate football schedule where they played inter American teams by only American rules. And um, But then they also played, because they were one of the senior teams in Winnipeg, they also played the Winnipeg uh, club uh, that year as well. Uh, how, but he was, he was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. How important was it for Winnipeg to get its hands on American players? And when they did, how were, you know, for the, for the, for the success of the, of the club, um, how were they received by the community, the team, the league? I mean, how, how were Americans received up there for this? They were actually pretty well received, at least by the people that were most interested in uh, the rugby football. 
And so the crowds did increase uh, with the arrival of the Americans. It could have been out of curiosity, right? Uh, part of it also was the newspapers highly promoted the fact that, hey, we've got these Americans up here now and all this. And so there were some, there was some more interest. Um, but one of the things, when you talked about the crowds, one of the things that really um, showed up with, with the issue with the crowds was there was a couple of seasons there where they played the Regina Rough Riders in the semifinal of the West. They had a huge crowd for that game, like I spoke of before, but then they played Calgary in Winnipeg both times for the Western final, and they didn't get much of a crowd. And everyone was interested in Regina. And so um, <laughs> they just didn't get the same crowd. So in other words, bringing up the Americans and having success in Winnipeg with, with that team in 1935, that's what turned things around in Winnipeg. And eventually, um, you know, they, they, had, they moved into a new stadium uh, uh, and, and they outgrew that stadium as well because the team became very successful and very popular uh, starting with that 1935 season. Mm -hmm. Well, that 35 season obviously is, is the big season. What was the outlook for the Winnipegs. Did anyone foresee what possibly was on the horizon for this team? I mean, no matter who the Winnipegs played, no matter what level of football it was, this team was unbeatable. Just how strong were the Winnipegs in 1935 going into that season? I don't think that, except for maybe some of the promoters in Winnipeg, I don't think that outside of Winnipeg, they maybe thought they were going to be as successful as they were. One of the things to remember is that, yes, Winnipeg brought in and had a total of, I think it was nine Americans on the team, but Regina had eight. And so Re Regina had already been bringing in more Americans than Winnipeg had been. But people forget that fact because it was Winnipeg that won the Great Cup because they had brought in Americans. But um, so, you know, Regina was still looked to as the powerhouse. But then, um, you know, pe people saw what Bob Fritz could do and what Fritz Hansen could do, what this whole team could do, um, especially with Bert Oha on the line there as the line coach. And he really got things moving well. And, you know, one of the things, Warren, that's, that isn't mentioned very often, it's overlooked, though, that 1935 season, except for when they left to go east to play for the Grey Cup, they played every game at home. Oh, interesting. Why was that? Well, because in the uh, Western uh, semifinal and the final game, they would all, always alternate where it would happen. So in the Western semifinal game, it was always against the Manitoba versus Saskatchewan winner. And they would just alternate every year. And then at the top level, it was always against the Saskatchewan or Manitoba winner against the Alberta or British Columbia winner. And it just so happened that, that both of those games were scheduled to happen in Winnipeg that year. And so they, their entire 
pre-season season schedule was scheduled in Winnipeg because three of the games were against an upstart team, which was actually a, re, a re-resurrection team called the Winnipeg Victorias. Three of the games were there, but then all of the college teams that they played were also brought up to Winnipeg. And so, and then you added the playoffs, every single game was played in Winnipeg. Interesting. Well, certainly an advantage for the Winnipegs. And like I said earlier, we can't talk about everything in your book, Border Boys. I mean, you go into such great detail and you really do break it down um, each of those first couple of seasons for the Winnipegs. But we do need to talk about the payoff of the book, which was the Grey Cup and the Winnipegs becoming the first team from Western Canada to win it. So tell me about their opponent for the Grey Cup that year, Hamilton. Just how good a team was Hamilton and just how dominant still at that point in time were Eastern Canadian teams? Well, um, on the way to the Grey Cup, uh, it should be noted that Winnipeg did beat an Eastern team on their early schedule. And that was the Sarnia Imperials. And that event is significant because it was the first time any Western team had ever beaten any Eastern team at the senior level in any contest. Wow. And so right there after it was after that Sarnia game that people really took notice. And so, uh, so then they made their way to the, to the great cup. And so you know, Hamilton was a good team, but I think there was a little bit of overconfidence there. Um, I mean, they, they had an, an American as, as their, uh, I think he played the position of quarterback and he, he would throw the ball and run the ball well. Uh, but they, they had some overconfidence, I think, because before the game, uh, one of the uh, gentlemen that was associated with the Winnipeg team had visited the ticket office and uh, a policeman had knocked on the door and they let him in and the guy said, Oh yeah, here's, here's one of our linemen or something, you know, and it was a member of the, of the Hamilton Tigers. And the guy was going to work the overnight shift the night before. And, and so uh, he was going to work all night and then he was going to play the game the next day. And so there was a lot of, they just didn't think the West could ever win a great cup. I think is what it amounted to. So they were a good team, just like they had always been. Uh, in Hamilton, but the uh, overconfidence it uh, killed the day. But you know, there what really won it for Winnipeg that day was Fritz Hansen, and uh, I don't want to discredit uh, the work of, of some of the other players because I think it's important for people to understand how Bob Fritz was the true leader of this team and really engineered the win especially with a couple of special uh, trick plays that he that he came up with after watching the uh, De- Detroit Lions play the Brooklyn Dodgers of the NFL. But um, Fritz Hansen had the one run that just stunned everybody. And it was a, uh, a kick return where he fielded the ball and he had three Hamilton players 
right on him. But at the time, you know, and, and we still have that rule in the CFL where you have to give five yards cushion uh, and let the and let the re returner catch the ball. But you have to remember there was there was a couple of things in play in that game that you don't see in American football. Uh, well, one of them you do see, but and that was the fact that the field was just icy. Okay, we had a really icy field, um, and so and so you know it's hard to run on an icy field, anyways. But the other thing that's in play is that the Winnipeg's could not block for Fritz Hansen. There was no blocking on returns, and so Fritz Hansen's all by himself. It's one guy against twelve, and so he fielded the ball. And somehow he he bolt. What he did is he bolted straight ahead, which the guys weren't expecting apparently because they were expecting him to juke or to make some kind of a move. But instead, he bolted straight ahead, and um, and just zipped straight down the field uh, as fast as lightning. And and it's just everybody else looked like they were sitting still or standing still. And and he got that touchdown. And you know afterward. He was asked about that, and he said, well, you know, um, a runner has the advantage on an icy field, he said, because the runner knows where he's going to go, and huh. the other guys don't. Huh. Yeah, interesting. Good point. Good point. Um, you know, Winnipeg rolled through that season. I mean, they were 10-0. and Outscored the opposition 210 to 31. They recorded four shutouts. They took on a team that really didn't seem to fear them. That, you know, Hamilton really, I think, underestimated Winnipeg. And as you just alluded to just before, heck, they had guys working the night shift the day before the game because a team from Western Canada is not good enough to come here to our home turf and because the game was played at Hamilton, um, Winnipeg doesn't have a chance to win this game. But they scored quickly, a uh, 15-yard touchdown pass. And um, they went up, I think, I could be wrong here, but they went up something like 5 to nothing on the touchdown. Is that correct? A touchdown was only worth five points? Yeah, they still had the, the rugby scoring system which of course you know american football had up to a point where we still had five point touchdowns uh, but canadians they kept that Ooh, i don't know i think it might have been until the 1950s where they actually changed it so, okay so so they were up five nothing hamilton cut the lead five three shortly thereafter and winnipeg scored on another touchdown pass and uh, in the first half to go up 12 to four because you have the rouge uh, into the half. I mean, really, Hamilton playing on its home turf never challenged. How shocking was this? What kind of team was Winnipeg? Oh, well, Winnipeg, like I said before, had Bert Oha from Minnesota as their line coach. and But he was also just a dominant presence on the line. And they were able to rush the Hamilton quarterback and and keep him guessing. <laughs> and um, one of the reasons for that is that Oha had scouted out Hamilton uh, when they when Hamilton played Sarnia 
in in the game leading up to the Great Cup. And he watched them. And afterward, Olha said that he said, you know, I knew what they were going to do every single time. And so Olha was a pretty smart guy. Um, the other reason I, is that remember the East, they were a latecomers to adopting uh, the pass or really embracing the pass in Canadian football. So it was the West that really uh, took it up the most. And so um, they, therefore, they weren't as well-versed in defending the pass as well. And um, that led to Bob Fritz being able to uh, fake them out. Like Like I said before, he watched Detroit Lions play the Brooklyn Dodgers. And one of the things that they did in that game was something Bob Fritz had never seen before, and it was a pump fake. And uh, Bob Fritz wrote up a couple variations of a play where uh, took the ball back, uh, did a did a pump fake to a receiver, and then pretended to run. But huh. then, but then, but then, so then the receiver would then start running downfield, right? Because the defenders would come back and pursue the run, and then he would just toss it, right? Uh, downfield and get a touchdown. And they did that twice. And so that's how they got two of their touchdowns was on a on a play that Bob Fritz had seen the Detroit Lions uh, uh, or performed in the Detroit Lions game. Interesting. Well, Winnipeg went on to win that game 18 to 12. In the grand scheme of things, how important for Canadian football was this win by the Winnipegs? Was it an important win? And um, without the American influence, could this have happened? You know, it's interesting that you asked that question because, you know, the Canadian players on that team were the backbone of the team in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, they, they made up half of the line and uh, in some of those, in some of the games during the season, uh, the Americans sat out the game and, and let the, let the, the Canadian uh, players play. And they actually did just as well or better. They had, they had some superstars uh, from Winnipeg, one of them named Tubber Kabrinsky, who had played for the University of Manitoba. And he was kind of like a, a Fritz Hansen. Uh, in 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 the way he played, and so you know you have to give, give credit to all of them. And so when when they returned, you know, to Winnipeg, the people in Winnipeg recognized that it wasn't just the Americans that won that game. There was plenty, there was plenty of Canadians on the team, and they had seen those Canadians play um, over the years. But it was the Americans that you know helped to, to push them over the top. And uh, for Western Canada, it was huge because they had been fighting with the East for years. They had been promised, um, I think, more than once leading up to this game that, yes, yes, we'll play a great cup in, in the West at some point. And the powers that be would renege on that promise. And then the, they would end up playing in the East at the expense of the West, of course, because they had to travel. Uh, and... And of course, the guys had to take time off from work, right? Because you know this wasn't their full-time job by any means. So uh, it for the West, it gave them credibility, it gave them standing, um, 
and and it gave them more leverage in rules making and all that. So, well, Ryan, you certainly know your topic, the Border Boys, and they were a definite, without a doubt. I mean, they were a contributor to the first ever Grey Cup championship won by a Western Canadian football team. What did you find most surprising or what interested you? Now let's, what did you find most surprising um, about the CFL, the Winnipegs, the Canadian brand of football during this time period? Well, if you want to talk about the most surprising thing, to me it was the fact that they, up until I think it was 1933, they used, they had a penalty box. <laughs> just like <laughs> just like they do in hockey, right? So if there, there could be a penalty against someone, usually it was for tackling uh, somebody above the shoulders or the shoulders and above something like that and they called that scragging and anyways you could be put in the penalty box for a number of minutes um and the 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 curious thing about this is that uh they had eliminated that penalty box but during the 1935 great cup when the winnipegs had committed a defensive penalty um at that time the referees didn't weren't used to what to do in that situation when they were backed up near the goal line, like half the distance to the goal. So because they didn't know what to do, they said, well, let's just bring the penalty box back. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it wasn't in the rules anymore. And they made Bert Oha sit out that, that uh, next play. And of course, like I said, he kind of was the line, at least where he was. And sure enough, they ran right at the spot where he was no longer on the line and, and Hamilton scored a touchdown. So if it, perhaps if it hadn't been for that decision by the referees to bring back the penalty box, all of a sudden, uh, perhaps there'd be one less touchdown scored by Hamilton. In that Interesting. Yeah. I never knew that. Well, Ryan, your book, border boys, a terrific book, really a great retrospective on the beginnings of, the Winnipegs or the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, the American influence on the game back then. I want to thank you so much for stopping by and taking some time to chat with me about this great time in Canadian football history. If somebody wants to grab a hold of your book, how do they get it? Well, it's published on Amazon. So if you search for Border Boys, on Amazon, you'll, you can find it in the books, uh, but it's also through extended distribution. So I saw it was in Barnes and Noble and a bunch of other book sites. So you should be able to find it in those places as well. Uh, it helps if you can spell my last name correctly, which is C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-E-N. Um, but also if you just go to borderboysbook.com, that's the website for the book. I'll post a link to this podcast later on that website. Um, but you can find out more information about the book there, and then you can also follow links to purchase the book uh, from that website. Awesome. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I appreciate it. You have a great podcast. You do a great service. Thank you.
Over the course of their history, the Winnipegs, now the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, have appeared in the Grey Cup championship game 15 times and have won it nine times, including the most recent game, December 12, 2021, when they beat the Hamilton Tiger Cats 33-25. It was the second straight time Winnipeg beat Hamilton. The 2020 Grey Cup was canceled because of the pandemic. In 2019, the two teams met, and Winnipeg won that contest as well, 33-12. I'd like to thank my guest, R.C. Ryan Christensen, again for spending so much time with us. If you are a fan of the Blue Bombers or the CFL, I strongly encourage you to get a copy of his book, Border Boards. You won't be disappointed. Hey, thanks to all of you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.